Our reading this morning is taken from the uh, book of Hebrews, and it would be uh, chapter 10 and starting at verse 23 in the Black Bibles over by the door. It's on page 1007, 1007, Hebrews 10. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. The word of the Lord. So we started a series a couple weeks ago on the Different passages, but all around this topic of living in the suburbs and following Christ where we live. Everyone lives somewhere, and it's going to be a little bit different depending on where you live. Certain challenges arise with the context that you are in, the culture that you are involved in, even the time that you are in. We are in a specific time and a specific culture. We call them the suburbs. And so we are trying to take a look at ourselves and ask ourselves, are we following Christ to the greatest ability that we can? And it's kind of a hard look. It's kind of a difficult thing to look at ourselves and ask ourselves, are we doing what we should be doing? Have we given ourselves too much into something and not enough into the service of Christ? What is the happy medium that we need to find where we live and thrive here, but at the same time are able to go out serving Christ with abandon? So that's what we've been looking at, and we continue that this morning by looking at community together. Before we start, let's pray. God, thank you for your abundant grace. You have given us your word that our hearts may be illuminated, filled, and that we may go and be sent out. So heal us, restore us, build us up yet again, and focus our hearts on what you care about, on what is important to you, because what is important to you is the greatest of all things, the things that we need in our lives. God, you have given us this church. You've given us each other. And I pray that you would show us again what a great gift it is. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's a girl named Athena. She is 13 years old. She's from Southern California. And she is fed up with technology. But it's not just the technology itself, like her iPhone doesn't work as well anymore or her computer's too slow. She's fed up with what technology is doing to her friendships. She says in a book called iGen, I try to talk to my friends about something and they don't actually look at my face, she says, emphasizing every word in the last sentence. They're looking at their phone or they're looking at their Apple Watch and it kind of hurts. I know my parents' generation didn't do that. I could be talking about something super important to me and they wouldn't even be listening. She tells a story at one point that she got so fed up with one of her friends that she walked over, grabbed her her friend's phone, and chucked it across the room. I have a good arm, she says. Now, it's very possible I'm going to sound like an old man this morning, like a curmudgeon this morning. I'm going to try not to. I'm 38, so I'm I'm getting there. I'm there. I do think that our newest technologies are changing us. 
and especially our newest generations, and maybe not for the better. So Jean Twenge, I think that's how you say her name, she uh, studied and wrote extensively on the millennial generation, has now turned her attention to what she described, what she has coined, Generation iGen. That's the title of her book, iGen. So this is how she describes the iGen generation. They are born in 1995 and later. They grew up with cell phones, had an Instagram account before they started high school, and do not remember a time before the internet. That's fascinating. In other words, they are growing up in a world fully immersed in an always connected world. Access to and use of smartphones and social media is nearly ubiquitous for our teens today and even for some of our preteens. For iGen. Now, the jury is out on the long-term effects of this, of course, but I do think that we can at least admit that unfettered access to this new technology has changed the way this newest generation communicates. And so, two things based on the, on the most recent research, on the most recent studies, two things are clear. First, while this generation is far more connected to their peers than ever before, they communicate in person far less than ever before. And here's the second thing, and this may be the hard thing to hear. This lack of in-person contact, it seems, is making them miserable. Gene writes, teens who spend more time with their friends in person are happier, less lonely, less depressed, while those who spend more time on social media are less happy, lonelier, and more depressed. At the very least, online time does not protect against loneliness and and depression while in-person time does. Now, why do I share that? Why do I go through all of that? I think that maybe for the first time, we are seeing what happens when huge portions of our population disconnect, disengage from true community, from person-to-person community. And I don't think you need a study to tell you that those are gonna, that's going to be a problem. I don't think you need a study to tell you that. We know the effects will be negative because we know that we need connection with others, don't we? We are hardwired to want and need emotional relationships with other people. There's one 19-year-old in the book who says, everyone wants love. No one wants to admit it. Now, most of us are not 19 or even 29, but we are human. We have the same needs. We need person-to-person contact. True, authentic community, though, is hard to come by. The thing that we need desperately, that we either avoid it or it slips through our fingers like sand. And I do think that living here has something to do with it. I do think so. On the one hand, the suburbs seem to engage us and help us engage in community more than anything, any other place on the planet. Quiet streets, bustling schools, lively parks, homes in close proximity to each other. And yet so many things counteract that in our culture and the place that we live. Living where we do is expensive, at least to keep up with the Joneses, so we tend to work crazy hours. And then we fill up the rest of our time with what? With kids' activities, house projects, and then more 
technology. We are not immune from technology. It may not be as bad in our generation, but we, we are not immune. Did you know that they produced 455 TV shows, original scripted TV shows last year alone? 455. Something is happening in our lives that is disconnecting us from each other. Sociologists have noticed that we have gone architecturally from front porch living to back porch living. You go look at homes on the internet and you gravitate towards not the things, not the homes that have the greatest front porches where you can interact with everyone. No, you look for the backyard where you can seclude yourself. One person put it pretty starkly. That there is something about us that seems to design our, our lives around the suspicion of others. Now, I'm going to go one step deeper. I know this is dark so far. We're going to keep on going. I am actually most concerned about our own homes, our own families. I wonder if we are connected with our spouses, with our kids, with our family members as much as we used to be. I am a curmudgeon. I know that I am. But the desire remains, the need remains for person-to-person interaction. But we need to see something much more uh, important this morning. It's not just that we need it or that we want it. It's that God commands it. Community is commanded by God. And it is commanded as His part of His care and protection of us. He knows our needs better than we do. And so it should not surprise us that He would call us to engage in and participate in and take joy in deep and meaningful community. So we who have been affected by all the stuff that's around us, our living situations, the suburbs and technology, let us right now listen to him, to his words, may he speak to our heart. We are in Hebrews 10 today, mainly in verses 24 to 25, and I have three points to help us walk through it. Number one, community is not safe. Number two, community is great. And three, community is by grace. So that first one, community is not safe. Hebrews 10, 24, what does it say? And let us consider how to stir up one another. Okay, stop there. Don't go on. This passage, of course, is about community. It's all about community. It is about, as the author will say in verse 25, meeting together. Do not neglect to meet together. I'm sure you've heard that a million times. Do not neglect community. You need it. You need deep social interactions with other believers. But what is fascinating to me is that it is almost like the author is acknowledging right off the bat that real community is going to be hard. You might even call it unsafe. And let us consider how to stir up one another. Stir up. Now the Greek word for that phrase that we have there is actually hard to translate. I'll give you the Greek word. It is paraximus. It's a great word. Now, we don't have a great translation for it, and and part of the problem is that it can actually mean something pretty negative. It can mean something negative. It can mean something like provocation or friction or even sharp disagreement. And so if you remember the, the scene in Acts where Paul and Barnabas 
have a disagreement, right? They, they have a, a disagreement about John. Should they bring them along on their second missionary journey? And they totally disagree. They have a sharp disagreement. They were odds over this thing. They had, as the text says, a paroxysm. They engage in a sharp disagreement. And so we have the same word here. Now, why would the Hebrews author say that? Can he possibly mean something close? And I think yes. I think yes. He is calling his readers to enter into challenging, stirring relationships. And we know that real relationships with anyone, let alone Christians, bring friction. Two sinners or more come together, and there is bound to be paroxysm. Hebrews author is almost saying, I know that it's going to be that way. It is not safe. It is not safe. Now let's list some ways. Why is community not safe? Because it ain't. It's not safe. True community on the one hand is not safe because when you get close to another person, you're going to find out that they are not perfect. Eventually when you are with someone long enough, you are going to see their faults and you will be subjected to their sins. To engage community, though, means not to just ditch them when they, they become sinful or sinners, because they've always been sinners. To engage in true community is to put up with that. It means allowing the other person in your life to be human, to be fallen. You will never find a perfect friend, a perfect confidant. To do true community, you've got to engage with them. You have to live alongside sinners not safe. True community is not safe because it will demand that you give up your time for the sake of another. Now, we are so protective of our time, aren't we? And I know this better than anyone. We would likely give up our money. Take my money before you take my time away. And yet to enter into true community, you must sacrifice. You will have to probably choose to do fewer house projects, skip out on beautiful, sunny Sunday mornings, activities, miss your favorite show. You have to give up your time. That is not safe. True, true community is not safe because it demands that we engage with and serve people who are different from us. They are different from us. And maybe not just different, but from the world's perspective, beneath us, beneath you. Verse 25 says what? That the Christian community failed. Some of them in the Christian community had failed to meet regularly with the church. Now, the great reformer John Calvin, he surmises that this was because some of the people did not want to associate with the sick, the poor, the outcast. They could not handle the idea that the church was open to everyone and anyone, that all were treated equally. And they were like, I'm not having any of that, so I am not going to join with you. And yet true, true Christian community means that we engage and serve every person, no matter who they are. That is not safe. True community is not safe because in true community, you must reveal and deal with your true self. Here is a newsflash. You are not perfect. Just like the person in your life is not perfect, you are not perfect either. And it's going to get out. It's going to get out. 
your bad finances, your bad temper, your struggle with lust, your pride, your negativity, your gossip, your sexual sin, everything under the sun, anything that is in your life, it is going to eventually be revealed. Now, you might be able to hold it back, to keep it secret. If you come one Sunday a month, right? Just an hour, one Sunday a month, you can, you can stay secret. No one knows your stuff. But every Sunday, after you enter into a life group, as you enter and engage in deep Christian friendships, you cannot hide who you are forever. And that is terrifying. And it's not just terrifying because you're revealing who you are. It's because you know that you will not be able to stay the same. You will be forced to grow and deal with your sin. You won't be able to just explain it away. If you want to maintain peace, you will have to change your behavior. If you sin, you will have to apologize and ask for forgiveness and seek reconciliation. Is that safe? That is not safe. In the end, there are probably many more things, but in the end, true community is not safe because it is costly. It costs our time, our money, and our emotional and spiritual energy, and we've got to stick with it. To truly engage with others means that You will not just bear each other up in the good times, but also the hard times. Marital strife, financial hardship, grief, conflict. There is a 100% chance that that conflict will arise between Christians. 100%, I can guarantee it. Will you give your spiritual time and your energy to this thing? I think the author, the author of Hebrews is, is, is signaling to us that there is something different about Christian community. It is not safe. It is friction. It is paroxysmous. And it is exactly the thing that you need. He is saying that it is indispensable. It is a glory. This not-so-safe thing, it turns out, is truly great. And nothing Great was ever easy. Point two, community is great. It is great. So Hebrews 10, 24 through 25, this whole thing now. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So the author, again, let's just say this openly now, he's not disparaging community. He's not going to say that it's a bunch of conflict, that it's just an awful thing, that it's always going to be sharp disagreement. He is saying that there is something about it that you need. Yes, it is difficult, but it is what you need for your life. In fact, I would say that you need it so greatly that it will keep you alive. It is there to keep you alive. You need it to survive and thrive. And I get that from verse 25. What does he say? That we meet together all the more as you see the day drawing near. Why is the day capitalized? Because it's the day. It's not D-day. It's the day. The end of all days. The end of the world. The end is coming, he's saying. And if you want to make it to the end and be saved, you must have real community to do it. You must be united with others. My wife and I went to Europe a few years ago, a long time ago now, 2007. Man, that was a long time ago. We started in Munich in Germany, and it was pretty chill, pretty quiet, and then into Venice, which was even more chill and more quiet. And then we took a train into Florence, Italy, 
and you get out, and it is like a, a slap to the face. It is so crazy, crazy, noise, speed, congestion, far more than Boston or New York City. And then we got to Rome, and that was even crazier. And so walking around in, in the city in Rome was difficult, and it wasn't safe. It was not uncommon for pedestrians to get bumped. I saw it so many times where a Vespa would just knock someone out of the way as they tried to get past. There was a story about a tour group in Rome. They were all these, these Americans together, and they're trying to cross a busy intersection in Rome. And for some reason, their tour guy was on the other side of the, of the road, the intersection, and he's yelling to them, if you cross one by one, they will hit you one by one. But if you cross together, they will think you will hurt their car and they won't hit you. We need each other. We need each other to survive and thrive. And here's why. Look at verse 23. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So that is the goal, friends. That is the goal of our lives, that we would hold fast, fast to our confession, that we would live in hope without wavering. The day is drawing near. We must keep on trusting in Jesus. Now, why is that important? Why is it important that we last till the end? Verse 26 tells us, jump there. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversary. Now, that's a huge argument in the book of Hebrews, the idea that Christ is the great priest who stands in our stead as the great sacrifice. But what this is saying is that if you give yourself over to sin, if you do not hold fast to Jesus, to your confession, if you do not live your life in repentance until the end, the death of Jesus will be null and void for you. It will not count for anything. In the end, it will show that you never truly trusted him. And that is why we need community, the author of Hebrews says. He doesn't say study your Bible more to, to stick with it. He doesn't say pray more. He does not say do more good deeds. Meet together. Meet together. Do not neglect it. Your community is your life and your breath. It is your bread and your water. It is the shelter in the storms of life. It is chemotherapy. It is a defibrillator. United together we stand. Now how does it do this? How does Christian community actually hold us together in this, these trying times because these times are trying and it's difficult to live now where we do. Well, first, true community offers true care and love. Community offers true care and love. So look at verse 25. It says, encourage one another as the day is drawing near. So this is not just a pep talk. Encouragement here is not just a pep talk. It is a caring and a carrying. It is saying, in the midst of your storm, I will be there for you. I will be there for you to remind you of the good news of Jesus. I will be there to remind you who you are in Jesus Christ. I will not condemn you or chastise you. I will love you and I will support you. That is what true community is supposed to do. 
And connected with this, that means the true community offers acceptance, real acceptance. True community says, I am no better than you. You might look differently than I do. You might have a different amount of money than I do, but we are no different because we are all sinners. In fact, I might be a worse sinner than you are. And so I do not condemn you. You who have been created in God's image, come into my community. I accept you. That is an amazingly powerful thing when you can find a people like that who accept you, who love you and support you. True community also offers the chance to be healed, the chance to kill sin, and the opportunity to grow. So we don't just accept people. That's not the, that's not the end result. Just accept people as they are. No, we accept you. Come on in. But we also accept you knowing that you are a sinner. Remember our word, paraximos. It means to stir one another up. And we are to stir one another up to do what? He says, to love and good works. Now, we could unpack what each of those means, but I think generally it just means you are to become more like Jesus. You are to love like him. You are to live like him. And so as we get close to each other, there's going to be friction. But it is going to be good friction. We will hold each other accountable. We will admonish each other. We will remind each other of God's truth. We will work deliberately but gently to make each other into the people that God intends us to be. I love how Eugene Peterson puts it. He says this, There can be no maturity in the spiritual life, no obedience in following Jesus, no wholeness in the Christian life apart from an immersion in and an embrace of community. Now listen, I love this line. I am not myself by myself. And take that to the bank. Let that ring in your heart and your mind. I am not myself by myself. So true community, it provides love and care. It provides acceptance. It provides a chance to be healed and grow. And here's the last thing, and it might be the most important thing. It provides joy. It provides joy. And I think that's really what we need in the end that will sustain us. We need joy in the midst of our pain. We need hope in the midst of our trials and our storms. And this is possible in community. Joy is possible in community because we know that joy is what the Trinity does. We know that joy is how the Trinity lives. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have lived together forever in joy, unbounded, cosmic, eternal joy. You might hear people say, armchair theologians say, God created humans because he was lonely. Nothing could be further from the truth. Before creation, God existed in relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in utter and absolute joy. We were created because he loves us. We were created simply as the outcropping of their love and happiness and glory. We are created in the image of God. We are created in His image, and so we are meant to reflect that cosmic, heavenly, eternal reality. We need to, we get to experience the joy of communing with others. And so this is an audacious goal. You think 200K is an audacious goal? Here is a much more audacious goal, that you would find joy in the people that you live with. 
that you would find joy with the people, the believers in your lives, that you would seek to delight in them, that you would seek to be gratified in their presence, that you would find, truly find joy with them. Yes, community is not safe, but community is great. Last point, community is by grace. Community is by grace. So let's be practical. How do you do it? How do you enter into community like this? How can you live out this high and precious call from God? So let's be practical. First, I want you to work on your families. I want you to make your family first your true community. Because if we do this well, then we will likely do the other things well, or we will be better at that. And on the other hand, if we do not do our family community well, our, our, our immediate family community well, we will have a very hard time doing community anywhere else. You can't have a bad home life and have great community in your small group. So what would it look like for you to be more deeply connected, connected with your husband, your, your, your wife, your kids? Okay, curmudgeon is coming out again. Hang on. Most of our nights now are spent faced outwards towards a TV. We're looking down at our phones. My wife was, was, was with some kids this week. She's a, a substitute teacher, and she was with some kids, and she told them that we have, have really limited TV time in our house. And these kids were like, what's wrong with you? Are you crazy? And she explained that, you know, we think that it's going to be best if our kids generally learn more from books. And it was fascinating. She said, she, they all said pretty much, yeah, we understand. Yeah, we agree with that. From crazy to, yeah, we kind of get that. Our facing outwards is not the greatest community. And so I say, don't, maybe don't throw your TV out the window, but maybe turn it off. Maybe shut your phone down. Do community with your family. Talk. Sing, read, create, rest together. Second, join the church. Join the church. The community of a church revolves around this idea of membership, as does ours. Covenantal membership, the formal commitment of a person to a church. And the reason for this, the reason for membership, is because the church is not just a club. The church is meant to be a family, a family under Christ. And the only way that you can join up into a family that already exists is to commit to them formally, formally and deeply. I think it is very much like entering into a wedding vow, a, we a wedding covenant. I commit to you to this body in sickness and health and richer or poorer. Now, you may not do it for your whole life, and yet it is a deep commitment. Your commitment is meant to bring you past the struggles that you have with each other. It is meant to hold you as we deal with sin, as we deal with controversy, as we deal with conflict. Listen, if you stay in this church and you sit on the fence, I'm going to be bold and say this. It is not really true community because what you're saying is, I want all the benefits, but none of the commitment. So I just ask you again, would you consider becoming a member? We have another class that's coming up very soon. Come to the class. See what it's all about. Consider joining, not just joining, committing yourself. Okay, let's keep going. Number three, open up your home for meals in the church. This is probably the most practical thing you can do to do true community. Everyone eats. As far as I know, everyone eats. 
and so have people over. And listen, do not worry about entertaining them. Your house does not need to be perfect. Your food does not need to be Instagram worthy. Have people over, and especially people who are not like you. That is not the point. We're not just here to form our own little clubs and factions. We are to be at community at one, to be united with all the people. So do this. We don't really have a, a, an open directory, but go to your computer, open up our directory, close your eyes, and bring your finger down. And whoever comes up to that finger, have them over for dinner. Have them over for lunch. Open your home. Four, seek to reconcile with those you do not have peace with. This may be the most important thing you hear all morning, and so please listen closely. Reconcile with those you do not have peace with. Friends, we do not have the option to let conflict fester. We do not have the option to hold a grudge and remain at odds with another believer. The Apostle Paul goes so far as to say that you should refrain from communion, from taking the Lord's Supper, until you have tried to find peace with the person you are in conflict with. And so you must ask yourself now, who are you in conflict with? Who are you struggling with? Who won't you talk to? Who are you avoiding? Who won't you even look at when you walk into these doors? And then be courageous. Obey Jesus' command. Seek some counsel. And then fight for peace. Okay, here's the last one this morning. How do we do community? Be centered around the gospel. Be centered around and on the gospel. I was listening to a podcast this week with this wonderful woman named Rosaria Butterfield. She was a tenured professor at Syracuse University for a long time, and she was very active in the LGBTQ community before she eventually gave her life to Christ. Today she is married to a, a pastor, and she really has the gift of hospitality and community. And by gift, I mean off the charts. Listening to what she does and how she does it is truly astounding. It makes you want to live her life. She opens her home to everyone and anyone. Now, what she says is really fascinating. What she said in this podcast is fascinating. That she learned community in part. She learned this ability to have community and to open up her home in part from her LGBT community. They taught her. She says they are extraordinary at. They are off the charts good at community, but she says it was not always that way. It came about in the 1980s when the AIDS epidemic hit. And this community rallied. They rallied in incredible ways. Now we would say that the common grace of God led them to provide each other unparalleled care and support. Their homes, she says, were always open to each other. For those who were hurting, depressed or suicidal. They rallied around that issue. And she says she was taught by that. But then she says this. We should do better. We have every opportunity and every reason to outclass them. She says because what has rallied us, what should rally us is far greater, far better, far more consequential than anything else in the world. What should unite us is the gospel, the gospel of free grace. The gospel from our Lord promises to unite an ununitable people. Friends, you know what Jesus did when he came down onto that cross. 
he came to restore our community with him. We who were enemies with him, we were at war with him. He died for us that we may have peace with him. And so now we are one with him. We are united with him. The effect of this, the outcropping of this, is that we can now become one with each other. Ephesians 4 says that he died that we may break down the walls of hostility between those who believe. With those who are natural enemies with each other. The gospel creates and sustains the community that we so desperately need. Friends, one built on the other. One united with the other. One reconciled to the other. One poured out for the other. Friends, that is the loving command of Christ. Will we listen to him? Will we take advantage of this great gift? Let's pray. God, thank you for your abundant mercies. You provided us all things, and yet again, on a silver platter, you are offering to us this thing that will bring us life, that will sustain us and bring us joy. You are not the problem. We are. Our sinful hearts, our fear, our selfishness keeps us from reveling in, from enjoying, from taking part in this gift of community that you have given us. But by your grace, we are up to the task. By your power, we will follow suit. God, I pray for those who are hurting, those who feel forsaken and lost. May they take the baby step into the care and support that our church can offer them. God, I pray for those who are stuck in sin. Maybe it is a sin that they've been holding with them for so long, for too long. May they take the baby step into getting guidance and acceptance and love and counsel from this body. God, for those who are still on the fence about joining this church, I pray they would join as a result of your great love for them, that their fear would fade away and that they would commit themselves in body and soul to this place, to this people. And God, I pray that our community together, as we shape it, as we are shaped and grown by your gospel, it would not just be for this place, but that others would begin to see it. Others would, other, others would see, non-believers would see that there is something different about this community. It is not safe, but it is good, it is great. Would they see that? Would it be a light to our communities, to our suburban neighborhoods? Finally, God, we need your help. We need your power. Remind us again of your love. Remind us again why you have saved us, why you have broken down the walls of hostility and give us this great gift. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.